Production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. nerds discover your geeky haven with twink.com we've been delivering you the best products and all things pop culture for more than 20 years enjoy a wide selection of officially licensed merch from your favorite fandoms we carry top brands from disney funko marvel and dc star wars harry potter and much much more we also offer an array of exclusives that you won't find anywhere else with all these collectible goods you're definitely gonna need a bigger boat Get ready for your spring sci-fi celebrations, including First Contact Day and May the 4th with Toink exclusives that are out of this world. Use code WINGEEKS15 to save 15% off of your order. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Join the revolution and save the galaxy. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part... Are you? Want to know more? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is Extreme Freedom Audio Bulletin. It cannot be traced, it cannot be stopped, and it is the only free voice left in the Geek Revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. Uh, it will be the dashing duo, but at the moment it's just me, Mike. Derek is coming in progress, but we have a special treat for everyone this episode. Um, you may have heard us reference him over on Wookiee Radio because he reached out to us when I put out topic ideas. Um, and he was the first one to reach in uh, with a the topic and we went with it and I think it's going to be setting up a, a new segment for us over there. Um, so the person I have on the line with me now that Derek's going to hop in and join us with uh, as soon as he can, uh, I have Scott Chernoff with me and you have a impressive resume between Rick and Morty, uh, the Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. Um, yeah. Ojax. Ojax Horseman. Yeah. A lot of... Uh random cool things on that resume uh writer actor producer director i mean a man of all and <laughs> on this on this show a we, man of no focus whatsoever yeah, or as we say in entertainment jack of all master of none exactly um of course you fit fit in perfectly with this show too not only because you've done so much um but also we we've been interviewing a lot of independent film creators or independent um, media creators. And, and not only have you done quite a bit of mainstream, but you have done quite a bit of independent work as well. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for, you know, putting out great content when you weren't doing You're anything welcome. mainstream. Uh, <laughs> Nobody we, thanks me enough for my content. We, thank you for having me. I'm honored. Oh, it's to be a pleasure. Here. I'm honored that you took my suggestion. It was funny when you, you tweeted any suggestions for topics for Wookiee Radio? And I just thought people would probably be saying, you know, oh, the new Obi-Wan show <laughs> or Celebration. I just thought it would be funny to say something very basic, like lightsabers and how awesome they are. Sorry about the noise from my computer. No. 
Perfectly and, fine. Um, but I love, and so I said lightsabers, and I love that you you guys took the suggestion and you you took it seriously. You had a really ta- great talk about uh, your favorite lightsabers. So I'm going to ask you your yes. favorite lightsaber. Um, I certainly, despite the fact that I have worked for Star Wars and spent many years in the Star Wars universe, I don't know that I even have given enough thought to the differences between lightsabers. For me, it's all very visceral and emotional. So for me, it's got to be Luke's lightsaber, you know, originally Anakin's lightsaber. It's got to be the, 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 the saga one from A New Hope that Obi-Wan gives him. But also, I'm also partial to the green one that he brings in in Return of the Jedi. So for me, it's all about, you know, I love all of Star Wars, but the original trilogy is what really... Uh, hits me deep down on a very primal level. So okay. those are those are my favorite lightsabers. Uh, I think I then continued with the guy's favorite saber color. Do you, or what color would you go with if you were? Well, green is my favorite color, and I do love that that okay. saber that Luke has. But I think I'd still go with the blue, the traditional classic okay. good guy blue. Uh, I think I said green myself. Um, because I, I would love to get Vader's hilt. Uh, there's a company we deal with called Rebel Sabers, uh, and I w- they have a, a Vader's hilt. And I would love to get his hilt and make it and do the green blade with it. Oh. Um, so what statement is being made by having Luke's green lightsaber in Vader's hilt? Um, that's just me. Because <laughs> has anybody else? I mean, who else has had a green lightsaber? Um, Anyone? Yoda. Oh yeah, that guy. Um, there were quite a few background Jedi's. Yeah, okay. And Attack of the Clones. I mean, sure, the, the yeah. predominant colors were uh, what green, red, blue. And I think in Attack red, of the Clones, blue. there was there was some yellow. But I know yellow. Well, was, then I mean, Mace Windu brought in purple. Right. Which I love the story yeah. behind that. Samuel L. Jackson wanted to find himself quicker on on screen, so he asked he for purple. Yeah, he loved purple. I mean, he he lobbied for his whole part. I mean, he's a guy who just talked himself into Star Wars, which is great. It's pretty amazing. How can he not? Um, Then I think I went with favorite saber sound. Whose saber did you like sound most? But I I don't know if that may go too deep with you. Well, I I mean, too deep would indicate that like I'm freaked out. Like that's too nerdy. But but it is too deep in the sense that like I couldn't tell you whose saber sounds different from one another. Shocking confessions with a former editor of Star Wars Insider. Oh, <laughs> uh, as as you heard the guys talk about, they didn't know truly that there were different sounds. Yeah, uh, amongst the different. Um, I mean, I imagine when you get to like um, uh, what's his name, um, Grievous. You know, when you get to like the crazy bad guys sabers they probably have some different sounds right yeah um like with the rebel saber that i'm using now um which is the dark dark silver all right um take your word for that uh i use green i I go green blade right now i'm doing dooku's sound font for it um but i i wrote i bounced between dooku and i bounced between vader uh, I just love the little bit of growl uh, I do to like their sabers. Uh, uh, you know the the handle, the curve. Yeah, I 
I thought this is not practical until I actually picked one up. Like, no, this is actually pretty decent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was impressed. Like, okay, there is some practicality to it. Yeah. Don't underestimate Count Dooku. No. Got it going on. Uh, I'm assuming you have listened to Dooku Jedi Lost by Kevin Scott, that audiobook. I will go ahead and pretend that I have. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, I haven't. You need to check it out. Uh, it's yeah. tall. It's narrated um, through, or it's told through the eyes of Ventress. Okay. As she's looking for information for Dooku, but it goes back to when Dooku was a Padawan and becomes a master, uh, leading up to him leaving the Order. I would be interested in that. And it's a great story. Absolutely great story. Made me appreciate Dooku so much more because of it. And Ventress, even. So it's from when she was still under his wing. Yes. 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 Which is great. Uh, was was there anything in the conversation that we did not cover that you would have wanted us to cover? No, I thought you were incredibly thorough. Okay. Like as you can hear, my like when I started working at Star Wars Insider, I thought like, well, I'm the biggest Star Wars fan in the world. But I quickly realized like it go, there's so much that I haven't thought deeply about. Yeah. I didn't really know the expanded universe very well at that time. I mean, like. You know, I knew so much about the movies themselves, the original trilogy especially. And when I was there, it was, we were doing a special edition, episode one and episode two. So oh, wow. That was all unfolding at the time that I was there. And, um, you know, but I learned that, like, there are, you know, that obviously there's so much, you could go so much deeper on everything. And everybody has their own sort of, area that's the most interesting for them. I think for me, it's less about the details of the hardware, which I love, and more about the nuances of the story. Okay. And that's where I really um, thrive and, and love Star Wars. Okay. Have since I was, you know, since I saw it when I was a very small child. Right there with you. We're probably around the same age. Probably, yeah. I'm very old now and old enough to have seen A New Hope in the theater when it was just called Star Wars. I saw Star Wars at a drive-in movie theater as a double feature. Star Wars followed by Star Wars. It's just great. It's a great double feature. It was an awesome double feature. I mean, I didn't know what I was walking into. I didn't know even that it took place in outer space. I didn't know a movie could take place in outer space. I was like five years old. And after... I saw it. If a movie didn't take place in outer space, I considered it a failure yeah. on every level. You know, it was just a change. Everything. I, I was six. And of course, yeah. you know, driving movie theaters in May, you know, the movies start late. And then the second one ends so late. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents said I was up for both. I stayed awake for all of it. Yeah. And, I and, even didn't, and even didn't. And even didn't. And I didn't Sorry. even fall asleep on the way home. I was so excited. I'm like, wow. Okay. I had a similar report because because uh, I don't, you know, remember it that specifically, but I remember that I've been told that, you know, oh, before we took you to that, and anytime we took you to a movie, it would be really annoying because you would always be wanting to get up to go pee or something, go potty. <laughs> and uh, we'd have to leave the movie. And so my dad told me that, you know, when he took me to see Star Wars, he kept leaning in and asking me, do you need to go to the, the potty now? And I was, mm-mm, mm-mm. I did not want to move. I and mean, he was terrified that I was just, you know, soiling myself through the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I wasn't. But um, although I probably, you know, you would think I would have just from excitement. But I, I just, 
I did not want to miss a second. Like I couldn't yeah. imagine leaving that chair and missing a second of what I was watching. Yeah. I, I, I'm right there with you. Um, not I, very unique to say that I love star Wars and still do, but I, but that is, uh, that's me. I was already a, a sci-fi fan going into it because, you know, with my dad, Space 1999, Star Trek, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I watched all that. But, uh, of course, you know, various cartoon options we had as kids. You know, I, I leaned towards the sci-fi style, you know, Space mm-hmm. Ghost. Um, I was just uh, already Sesame Street and the Muppets, which I still Muppets. love. Love but Muppets. That was my world. So that was... That was what I would have been watching, you know, given the choice before Star Wars. And then, of course, it was both. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I vividly remember even just the two sort of coming together, Luke Skywalker, the the, the Star Wars episode, the Muppet show. But what yes. I really remember, I mean, I was such a hardcore Muppet and Star Wars fanatic that I remember being given the, there was a Time Magazine cover story about The Empire Strikes Back coming out. I think they called it Star Wars 2 or something. Yeah, yeah. I was like eight years old, and I was reading this article in Time Magazine, and it came to a sentence that said something like, Yoda, a new Muppet, they called him a Muppet, created for the movie and performed by Frank Oz, and I lost it. And I remember just flipping out and running to my parents and yelling, there's a Muppet in the new Star Wars movie. (laughs) I I, want to say I was the same way. I couldn't believe it. Once say I was the same way, and I think a lot of that was because Frank Oz was attached to it. So yeah. they figured it had to be a Muppet. Right. And it, it makes sense why people would assume, like, oh, it's a Muppet because it's a puppet done by Frank Oz. But clearly not a Muppet, but still yeah, in the, in the family. And, so you know, close your eyes and you'll hear Grover. So you were with Star Wars Insider for what years? Let's see. I started writing uh, freelance for them in about 90 six probably okay. 95 or nine might have been 95 and um you know i was uh pretty young i was in my 20s and i was writing for a, a weekly paper here in la and um some i i found star wars insider in a comic shop and i hadn't heard of it before and I was like, whoa a whole magazine about star wars and wow it's edited i recognize the editor john bradley snyder was uh the editor-in-chief, and he had done this zine called Report from Star Wars Generation that I loved. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I looked through and I saw that an article in it was written by somebody that I worked with, with that weekly paper. I marched into work the next morning with the magazine and almost like, almost like accusatorily, like, like I had caught her in a crime. I was like, <laughs> uh, you never told me this. You write for a Star Wars magazine? She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I write for them, you know, freelance every once in a while. And I was like, um, what, how, I, how can I get in on this? And uh, she very kindly, Jamie Painter, hooked me up with um, the edit with John Snyder. And uh, he invited me to pitch some stuff, sent him some writing samples that he liked. And he invited me to pitch stories. And I sent him like a long list of stories that I was pitching him. And he, he uh, took one, gave me an assignment, and that was it. I started writing every issue for the Star Wars Insider, and it grew from there. I started doing a, a column that I pitched in called In the Star Wars Universe, where I'd interview the people who were, to me, the big stars, like your uh, Lobox and Bib Fortuna, yeah. the actors behind those characters that I was really curious about. 
And I just started writing more and more and around uh, 98 ish, maybe 97. Okay. They, John said, Hey, I need to step back. And, you know, it was part of the star Wars fan club. And they also had uh, the company, which Dan Madsen founded. Dan is amazing. Who published the magazine. They also did Star Trek Communicator and Star Trek Fan Club. And so they had a ton going on. And John said, I want you to be the editor. You'll be the managing editor. And I'll kind of step, take a step back and you'll run it day to day. And of course, I jumped at that. And so then I, so I was basically writing half the magazine and assigning stories and editing them. And I worked there through basically through um, the release of Attack of the Clones. Okay. I will say I have been probably a subscriber uh, from that time period. I, I think I came... probably read some of my work. I think I came into it uh, late 97. Yeah. As I was wrapping up uh, school here in Orlando. That was my era, and um, it was great. It was an amazing job. I got to interview, cast, you know, past and what was then the present. Uh, behind the scenes people, you know, from George on down. And I got to go to the set of episode two. I got to, you know, go all kinds of places and meet all kinds of people. And it was a very fortunate. I mean, I, there was nothing other than the fact that I, I, I could write, you know, and I knew how to write for a magazine and do all that work. It was reliable. Like there was nothing, nothing particularly that made special that made me deserving. I was a very lucky fan to kind of get to go behind the, the curtain. It was, it was amazing. Um, it, I, I'm assuming you've been listening to Wookiee radio for a while. Uh, I know this is weeby geeks. Um, I, mean, I listen every, every once in a while. Oh, I'm not okay. super avid to be honest. Um, you know, I'm a very important person. So I have Mike, I have, you know, lots going on. I totally yeah, understand. I in every once in a while. Awesome. I'm glad we're part of your rotation. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, anything with the word Wookiee in it, and I'm, I'm hooked. You know, I'm a comedy guy, too. So as you can tell from the rest of my resume, so yeah, I love Star Wars, and it's super meaningful to me, but I, I also love the sort of goofy. I love that it's this, you know, really serious story about, you know, the, the power of myth and the battle between good and evil and, and doing the right thing and all the different stories that are told. But I also love sort of the goofiness of it and the crazy sounds and creatures and Wookiees. And so, so you, anytime Wookiee anything, like, I'm like, oh, I'll listen to something called Wookiee Radio. I mean, I'm hoping that, like, it's going to be music DJed by Wookiees probably when I first <laughs> tune in, you know. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. Well, we, we, for a while, we were using the tagline uh, translator for the Wookiee impaired. There you go. Wow. So, um, so it's talking about comedy, how, how did you get started um, in the industry? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's no like good way to get in. It's, it's such a crazy industry. And the whole time I was working for Star Wars, I was also breaking in on the other front. And it, it's, it was tough. I mean, let's see, how did I, I think I first broke in, so to speak, by taking classes at a theater here in LA called the Groundlings Theater. Anybody who knows comedy might have heard of the Groundlings. If you've heard of Second City yep. Theater, it's sort of like Second City. It's improv and sketch comedy. A lot of great people came out of the Groundlings going back to like, I don't know, from... 
SNL, like Phil Hartman and John Lovitz up through the, the name. Wig. The name sounds familiar. Uh, Melissa McCarthy. There's tons of great Phil Lamar, who does a lot of Star Wars voices. Who we were on that TV. He started yeah. out as a groundling. So I started taking classes there um, in my early 20s. Uh, I figured there were two routes for me to go. Like stand-up comedy or kind of sketch comedy. And I chose to go that ladder route and learn about improv. I liked working with people. and took classes there and then eventually got invited to join uh, the Sunday Company, which is like the B company there where we do a show every Sunday night with new sketches oh. and improv. And so, and we'd work on it all week. So it was like a comedy boot camp. I learned a lot. Uh, it was amazing. And so from there, uh, that was one way that I broke in, in terms of, from there, I got an agent as an actor for commercials. The way that they do acting agents here right. is, is you have commercial or theatrical. And theatrical means TV and movies, etc. And I got a commercial agent and I started going on commercial auditions and I started acting in commercials. So, what you probably don't see when you look me up because there's it's not listed on IMDb or whatever is that I did a, a bunch of commercials. So in you know 15-ish, 20 years ago, you might have seen me frequently in commercials. Do you remember your first commercial? I do, yeah. My first one was for Purdue Chicken. And um, I played a guy who was so bad at barbecuing that I burnt my house down. And it was something, you know, it was supposed to be funny and it was something like, I think the tagline was like, don't know how to cook, try our easy Purdue chicken. And that was the first of many roles where I was basically the what not to do guy. <laughs> you know, because I am not the leading man and not very dashing or, or handsome. So I was always the person at the, you know, I was like, this is the, I was throwing the bad party, you know, that, that got perked up when Jason Alexander showed up with KFC. Or I was... At, if you remember when Jason Alexander yeah. was a KFC guy, yeah. I was, uh, you know, the the guy at the bad motel that you don't want to stay at until the protagonist finds the good one. And so this was uh, the first of those. I bur- the funniest thing to me was that we shot this at a, a lot here called the Warner Ranch. It's a back lot that's owned by Warner Brothers. And the house that was supposedly mine, if you know the Lethal Weapon movie, yeah, this is good for a, a geek podcast. Um, the house that Danny Glover and his family lived in was, you know, supposedly right, right. the exterior. It was that house on the lot that was supposedly mine. And if you know this house, it's huge. Yeah, huge. I don't know how a cop afforded it. You know, it's a huge, you know, two story, you know, mega house. Now that I'm a homeowner, I'm like, I can what? But it just struck me as really. I was like 25 at the time. Like, how how is this my house? Right. How am I the dad at this house? But I was Silicon Valley. So, yeah. So I started out in commercials that way. But as a writer, it was a different story to break. And one of the, you know, you mentioned independent uh, content creation. Really, like the other thing besides the groundlings that was really like my training ground is this this, uh, festival and website called Channel 101, which you can find at channel101.com. It's still going, although I haven't been involved. For a long time and it predated youtube so it was started like a year or so maybe before youtube and some friends of mine rob schraub who's a director and dan Harmon, 
who is a writer, uh, and he is probably most known as the creator of Community and the co-creator of Rick and Morty. And they started this thing for friends that was like film festivals where we would do, you know, they would give us a challenge and be like, everybody do a horror movie, everybody do this, and we would get together and show what we made. And they started this thing, this monthly festival called Channel 101, which was a kind of mock TV channel where everybody who was competing or participating made a five-minute TV show. At the time, this was pre-YouTube, pre a lot of internet videos. Like, oh my God, how will we fit an entire TV show into five minutes? Now it's like, oh my God, five-minute video. That's, that's really long. But at the time... <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot and we would make these pilots and they were all comedies and we would have a, a screening night once a month where the audience we would screen our pilots and the audience would vote on their favorites and the top five would get renewed and the rest would get canceled if you got vote the votes you came back a month later with episode number two okay and if you got canceled you could come back if you wanted with a new show so i did this and you can go to channel101.com and see of great stuff and there's a lot of people that you can see before they were famous there the lonely island uh those guys were there uh you know who else justin Roiland, who does Rick and morty like tons of people doing amazing yacht rock if you've ever heard of yacht rock yep. that started on yep. channel 101 and so um my partner who i mentioned to you earlier before we started andy crocker and i we were writing stuff together and we did a ton of stuff so uh channel 101 is really where i started putting my feet as a writer and content creator. And from there, I went on to make stuff for you know, tons of other sites, Adult Swim and um, Jib Jab, ComedyCentral.com, Comedy.com, and just tons of stuff and started writing and eventually got an agent. And, you know, it's a circuitous route. I eventually got a job at the you Conan know, show and making short videos there and then i eventually got put on the writing staff and so how did i break in it's a long slow slog and sometimes it feels like i'm still breaking in because as i'm <laughs> sure you've heard you know showbiz it's a feast or famine business in some years yes, there's it is. a lot of feasts and sometimes there's a lot of famine. yes yes uh so uh you mentioned conan how did you get the barbarian or conan sorry <laughs> no i know um <laughs> How how did that come about? Well, I mean, I'm assuming phone call uh, was it something that you thought it was friends joshing you? Conan and I said, "Hire me." Uh, no, it was a typical. It's just like there's no direct route. I had worked for the for Jimmy Kimmel for the Jimmy Kimmel show, and my job there was TV watcher, which is a really funny name for a job. But before that, so I got I got into the Kimmel world because a buddy of mine. Really good friend of mine named Steve Ag. He's on the Peacemaker show now. Okay, ever watched Peacemaker? Love Peacemaker. But he's John Economos, and he, at the time, he was a TV watcher for Jimmy. We met at the Groundlings, which I was talking about, right. Steve and I, and we became really good friends. And he got a job, and Jimmy had uh, would show clips during his monologue of from TV that he would then make fun of. And he needed people to be watching TV and not like fun TV, like The News or The View or a lot of bad reality shows, a lot of American Idol, to just find stuff that was inadvertently fun. So you know, like pop soup kind of stuff. So you clocked a lot of hours on the Kardashians. I clocked, I clocked a lot of hours on a lot of bad reality <laughs> So 
actually, I got into the Kimmel world. And Steve actually recommended me as an actor to be in a bit. So I started doing bits at the Kimmel show, like as a performer in comedy bits. And then they hired me as a TV watch. Steve became a, a right staff writer on the show. And they hired me to take his place as a TV watcher. And then, so I worked there for a, a while watching TV and um, be appearing in comedy bits. And and I event, and I loved it there. I loved working late night TV, but the TV watching job was kind of soul killing because it was, you know, I wasn't watching you know, fun TV all day. Like I said, it was just really a lot of just sitting and watching horrible TV for hours on end, right. <laughs> barely making much money for it. <laughs> and eventually, I sold a show. Uh, uh, I sold a show. I mean, it was an online thing to adults, which is super deluxe and adults went super deluxe was a site and there was like a sister company to adults swim and we did a, a little show called kitten versus newborn it was online videos and it was barely you know enough money to really brag about but it was enough where i said okay i can leave this job and so i, I kept doing bits for them but i left the tv watching job and then after a while um then again i was out of work didn't have any work didn't you know showbiz was in a famine and um Conan was coming to LA from New York. He was coming to host the tonight show and they needed somebody to be what they called a clip researcher, which was essentially the formal name for a TV watcher. And I really didn't, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time, now wife you know, saw this job listing and told me you should apply for this. I really didn't want to because I was like, it's not, it's barely creative. You know, it's not, it's just watching horrible TV. I don't know if I want to do that, but I needed a job. And uh, I went and I interviewed and I, I learned that actually, you know, Jimmy wanted, Jimmy Kimmel wanted clips that were sort of inadvertently funny to do jokes about. But Conan didn't want that. Conan, they just needed somebody to be manning the, the TVs so that when the writers had an idea and they said, oh, we need a clip from this show or we need a clip of the president's speech or whatever, they needed somebody to be the person to get that for them. And so it was much less of a commitment to sitting and watching. And I realized that I had time on my hands there and that I could start making my own bits. So I started taking stuff. So, you know, these bits on late night talk shows where they right. alter the video, they put people in it, they put the host in it, or they re-edit it to be funny, make the president say something ridiculous. I started just making my own because I suddenly had the time, I had the equipment, and I had access to everything on TV. <laughs> And I started cutting together these little pieces and they started putting them on the air and it became a regular thing at least once a week, but usually more, I was writing bits for the show and that's how I transferred onto the writing staff. And I was primarily doing those video bits and writing uh, those. And I was there for you know, four or five years, but that was a great, um, sort of backdoor in and I, I got to write other stuff as well for the show and it gave me that credit and I got into the writer's guild and from there I started writing other stuff with um, with a writing partner at the time Alison Floral and we I met at Conan and we started writing together and we started getting work on sitcoms and stuff like that so while was never a direct route at least for me there was no like I graduated from TV school and fielded the job. <laughs> I sort of just clawed my way in at every corner. So staying with Conan real quick. Um, yeah. 
Three-part question. Favorite, uh, first part, favorite sketch that you did or favorite, favorite bit that you did, uh, either as an actor or writer or both the show? Um, There were were many that I loved. They're all so like topical and um, there were some Star Wars ones I could tell you about, but I think my favorite one was a bit with uh, Jack McBrayer, you know, who played Kenneth the Page on... 30 Rock, uh-huh. and we cut him, I, I wrote a thing where we cut him into an episode of Breaking Bad as the new villain on Breaking Bad, and okay. cut him into a scene with Brian Cranston. Uh, I don't know how well you know the, how well you might know Breaking Bad, but it's a scene where he, where Walter White and Jesse Pinkman are in the desert, and they're sort of standing, facing off, like meeting some, like, cartel drug people, and Walter White is, you know, talking tough and he tosses his bag of meth to the guy to inspect. And we had Jack McBrayer in there being very Jack McBrayery. Um, and uh, it was really funny. And every time uh, we made Brian Cranston's side of things toss the bag of meth to Jack McBrayer and he would catch it and just toss it back. And it just became this game of catch. Right? <laughs> That one, and I think there's one that uh, that I did with another writer named Andre Dubuchet, who was, was basically his idea where um, Barbara Walters used to do a special of the like, most interesting, most fascinating people of the year. Yeah. And, um, and he was like, what if we put you in? And uh, we put me in. I was just a really boring guy. I think I was a window pane installer was my job or something. <laughs> and, and my name was Lambert Sanford. And I just remember that because it was two of the fascinating people's last names that we cut together to make her say, like, oh, wow. our next fascinating person is Lambert Sanford. <laughs> and she would ask me, you know, of my thoughts and about my life. And my answers were really dull. And it was not fascinating at all. So uh, it, it's not very funny to describe comedy bits as you've just learned. I think I remember both of those bits. And, and I. Wow. And I do enjoy dedicated it. Yeah. Um, favorite bit that you liked that never made it to air. <laughs> oh man. There was one that I can't even, t- I mean, they made me delete it. It was so um, potentially offensive that I shouldn't even go into, but it was some, uh, I'll, I'll just say that it was an idea from the head writer and it had to do with Oprah and it had to do with, she was, there was a scene where she was showing a book of photographs of her. And he was like, wouldn't it be funny if the photograph was blank? And the blank that we put in, it was funny, but it was so offensive that that it was like, oh, my, you cannot put this on TV. And and they were like, you have to delete this. And they had a producer stand behind my back while I deleted it from the computer. Oh, wow. (laughs) They were like, this is we cannot have this existing in the world. Wow. And then my final part a bit that you absolutely didn't like, didn't trust to work that ended up being everyone's favorite. And yet you still really not fond of it. Wow. Don't know if I have an answer to that. I mean, I haven't worked there in so long, but what was one that I really didn't believe in? The thing is, is that if I wrote it and didn't, well, that's not, I was going to say I wouldn't have even pitched it, but sometimes you're so desperate to pitch something with no ideas that you'll, pitch something and it wasn't really that there was anything I thought that was bad, but there were things that I thought like, 
no, I'm the only one who likes this. That that would be successful. I don't really have a good answer. Though. Okay. Uh, I see Derek has joined us and has been on for a while, there for a few minutes. Uh, Derek. Finally racing this, up with his presence. Uh, we're talking with Scott Chernoff uh, from Rick and Morty uh, from Tonight Show with Conan and the Conan Show, not Conan the Barbarian like I flubbed earlier. <laughs> okay. Um, I just like making that joke. Uh, of course, he, he's done other things, um, <laughs> other which things. we'll get into. Uh, uh, Bojack Horseman, um, you have any questions for him? Just give you a chance to catch up. Um, Who are you? Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't know what you guys have already talked about. So I'll just kind of go in, uh, with a more of a, a writing question. <clears throat> okay. And I was just wondering, um, is how do you deal with like the pressures of of trying to write these the skits and shows and stuff in um and trying to make sure you have something good all the time yeah how do i deal with the pressure not well always i mean the thing is if you're working <laughs> on a daily show like the conan show was like just don't have time to feel the pressure i mean you feel the the deadline so, but you don't mm. have time to like get into the emotion of it. You just, the clock is ticking and it's sort of exciting and exhilarating. I mean, it's a, we used to say at that show, it's a volume business. So it was just like, we just got to throw as many things against the wall and see what sticks. And I don't even often know what they're going to, I'll pitch as many things as I can. And then, you know, nothing's going to make it on the air that hasn't gone through like the head writer and then Conan that they haven't looked at and decided is worth pursuing. And so, but the pressure is hard to deal with, but I think for, it's different for different people. For me, I really thrived with that daily deadline. And it was like, okay, I have to have a pitch in by this time. I have to have, and especially with some of these produced pieces, these video bits, like we'd have to have a version done in time for, for a rehearsal, which was sort of in the middle of the day. And then after that, it could get killed. Conan could just say, no, no thanks. Or he could say, great, it's in the show. Or he could say, make these changes. And then you're on another race against time. And often you're doing it right up until the last second. And, you know, but there's something exciting. There's something exhilarating. I imagine some people would completely fold under that pressure. But I think I thrived under that pressure. It was really an exciting way to do it and then go home that night and watch it on TV. I mean, there was nothing like it. But for other things, the pressure is, if anything, harder to deal with than on a daily. Because I think for me, at least, the more time that I have, then there's more time to procrastinate. There's more time to <laughs> drift. There's more time to panic. There's more time to doubt. You know, when it's got to be done that day, you just can't afford to leave the, the page blank. You know, or you could have a day. Sometimes you get lucky on Conan and go like, okay, I already know what's happening with other writers and other pieces. And I think the show is overstuffed, so I don't have to worry. But most of the time, but, you know, when you, it's harder for me when it's like you're on the staff of like a sitcom and you got to come up with ideas for episodes to pitch because mm -hmm. I would put more pressure on myself. It's really got to be special. It's really got to be unique. It's really got to be something that's never been done before and when it's a daily situation i didn't have time to think like that it was just like 
sometimes it was the only thing I can think of. I'll just put it out there. And I would sometimes I'd put it out there and they go, oh, yeah, great. Let's do that. And I go, oh, OK, yeah, let, let's do that. Other times they go, mm, no, no, we're, not, we're not getting that. But when it's, you know, stories that require more thought and depth, how do you deal with the pressure? Hey, I wish I knew. You just got to get through it and do it and hope, hope for the best. But there are periods where you, that you'll go through that could last weeks where you're like, I suck. I'm sure you've heard of imposter syndrome, you know, where you're like, everybody's oh, yeah. going to figure out that I suck. I have no good idea. <laughs> you know, one, one thing on, on a show I worked on that was really helpful was when a, a really experienced writer was like, I was like, well, I had this idea. And then I realized it was from this other show. He was like, that's okay. Like, what? He's like, I do that all the time. Tell me the idea that I was like, but it was done on, you know, this other show. He's like, we're going to make it different. Tell me the idea, you know, and, you know, huh. it might not, it's going to evolve. It's, that's just the germ of it. You know what I mean? It's not, we're not going to do exactly what they did on that other right, show. Because our right. characters are different. Our story's different. Our tone is different. It's going to change, you know. So that freed me up a lot to be able to be like, well, once there was an episode of Vern and Shirley where this happened, and wouldn't it be funny? <laughs> yeah, you know. We're, we're going to have the sidekick jump a tank of sharks. <laughs> yeah, jump those sharks. Yeah. But I did. I did well, a, a I have... an episode once that was based on an episode of, Vernon, of Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> I have heard it said that there, you know, there's no original ideas anymore and everything's kind of just reworking of other ideas. I mean, there's truth to that. It's not obviously a, a, a real, you know, one of a kind genius can come along with something very unique. You know? Right. David Lynch is only one in a billion, you know, but mm. for the rest of us mortals, it is variations on the same themes. I mean, even we were talking before you got here, quite a bit about Star Wars. And obviously that was, you know, George Lucas was blatantly stealing from uh, Akira Kurosawa, from uh, Joseph Campbell, from Westerns, right. from yeah. serials that he watched as a kid the stuff he saw and read mm -hmm. as a kid, he was recycling and making it new through his filter. And he's obviously a genius in his way, but he was still recycling ideas. Right. So I don't know how, if I've even come close to answering the question of how to deal with the pressure of writing. I don't know if anybody knows how. The same way as you deal with any pressure in your life, everybody's got their own drugs that they may take or <laughs> meditations that they may do. No, I think you answered pretty good. I think you gave us a pretty good answer on that one. Thank you, Derek. Notice Mike never said any of my answers were good, so now I'm on team Derek. <laughs> so I'm getting called out well, on the carpet by an I, expert. I can't speak uh, on Mike, <laughs> but you know. Don't worry, Mike. I'm just here to, I'm just trying to create as many feuds as I can. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've been loving your answers. I, I am. I'm actually enthralled, enthralled with the conversation. Um, I want to get into Rick and Morty. Yes. Um, You've heard of it. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. I need more swash, Szechuan sauce in my life. <laughs> I love Szechuan sauce. Um, I don't think I've ever had any Szechuan sauce. See, I remember it before McDonald's got rid of it. And I love the fact that Rick and Morty brought it back. They just need to bring it back off full time. We did nothing for mankind. Yes, you did. Thank you. Um, 
So how did you get involved with it? Well, you know, I, that is a case of, you could say of friends. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a combination of, of uh, already being a voice actor and already being in that world and, and knowing the right. <laughs> I, I, uh, mentioned Channel 101 before. Uh-huh. So Justin Roiland, Dan Harmon, and and Rob Schraub created uh, Channel 101. Dan Harmon co-created Rick and Morty with Justin Roiland. And Justin was a friend of mine. I met Justin Roiland in at Channel 101. I remember when he submitted his first video. The way we used to work it was if your show was one of the top five shows that month, the prime time shows, so to speak, you were on the screening panel and so we would get together once a month on that panel and look at new submissions and you know we would get submissions from people we didn't know and we got from a group called comic sacrifice that justin was a member of and i just loved it and it was not animated it was live action video that justin and uh, abed gaith and uh, chillian had done together and um it was really funny. It was really weird. Nobody knew what to make of it, but I remember loving it and insisting. I, you know, a few people. It was polarizing. A few people were like, "What is this? It's it's weird. Makes no sense." And then a few of us were like, "It's so original and amazing. We have to let it in." So we <laughs> let it in, and it was awesome. I it did not get the votes to come back the next month, but those guys kept submitting. It's, and it's up there. And all the stuff that's screened, by the way, if you go to channel101.com, you can go all the way back in time to 2005 or three. I think it might be 2003 that we started. It was almost 20 years ago. Um, you can go back uh-huh. all the way back there and see that stuff. And you'll see everything that Justin submitted. And there was a bunch. And he did, except I don't know if his show House of Cosby's probably back up there now. I was, I was, that's a great animated show you've got to watch. It was taken down for a while because Bill Cosby tried to get it taken down. But um, that was before everybody knew what a monster he was. So then it went back up. But So Justin started doing stuff for Channel 101, and I started in a lot of it. He started doing a ton of animation uh, videos for Channel 101, and I he would ask me to do voices. And so I would do voices. And this was just stuff we were doing for fun. We were not getting paid. Quite the contrary. We were paying to make our stuff. And I would do voices. And also Justin would be in other people. You know, we all would do stuff in each other's videos. There's also videos up there. So really one I recommend that I just remembered, the guy named Dave Hartman. Dave Hartman is an amazing comic artist. And it's called The Call of Echo Mountain. And everything on Channel 101, most of it is comedy. But a lot of it is like weird, twisted comedy. Okay. Horror comedy, not all of it, right? But it's all comedy, and or for the most part. And I don't know what's going on there now, so maybe it's not. But um, Call of Echo Mountain that Justin and I are actors in, and it's really funny. And Justin's really funny. Justin is just super funny, and he would do these. And I just loved anything he did, and he um, would have me do voices, and then he would start to get success, and started to get to do pilots and. I did voices and basically anything he asked me to do. And it was awesome. Often, well, it was awesome. It was often in the middle of the night or, you know, Saturday night at 10 o'clock, call me up and be like, hey, man, can you come over and do some voices? 
And I would. I mean, you know, get in his closet with the mic and he would record me doing these characters and um, make his cartoons. And then he got a show and it was going to be called Rick and Morty. And uh, it was based on some stuff he had done for Channel One, I believe. And um, he uh, called me up and said, hey, if you come do some voices, it's an actual show, you'll get paid. Um, And I did. And I did a couple episodes in the first season, and I think it was on the second one that I did. First one were just kind of some random incidental characters, and then I played a guy named Gearhead, and Gearhead uh, is a character who ended up coming back and is in a few more episodes. And so I just kind of, before we knew what it was going to be, I knew it would be amazing because Justin is a genius, and everything he does is really fun. And Dan, and Justin and Dan, but Dan is a genius, and the two of them combined, it would be amazing. And in this case, the you know the, a lot of people agree. Very cool. And uh, and also, I want to recommend a show. I think it's on HBO Max. I'm just going to plug this because I have nothing current that I'm plugging. But I'll plug. So there's another guy named Brian Weissel, who's another guy that I met at Channel 101. This cartoon, also brilliant, weird, twisted, crazy cartoons. I started doing voices for him. He, he was a writer on one of the early seasons of Rick and Morty. And he did a show for Adult Swim that Justin Roiland produced. And Justin also played one of the main characters in. And I also played one of the main characters in. And so did... Um, oh, man. How can I blank on her name? She's a legend. Ming-Na Wen, you know, Fen- ah, is a voice on. And um, the show is called Hot Streets. And it was on for two seasons on Adult Swim a couple years ago, maybe three, four years ago. I think they're all on HBO Max, I think. But look up Hot Streets if you like Justin Roiland, Rick and Morty, that kind of twisted comedy animation. You'll love Hot Streets. I just added that. Awesome. I just cool. added that the other day to my, to my watch list. Did you? It's, I, yeah. I hope you like it. Let me know if you like it. It's really weird. It's not exactly the same as Rick and Morty because it's it's fr- Justin produced it, but Brian, it's Brian's brainchild, and it is oh, I, awesome. I'm, and, I'm a, and I played one of these two agents who are on the hot streets unit, and we're basically like X Files cops. Okay. Okay. Mm. See, I'm I'm also a big fan of Ming Na Wen. That's what drew me to the show initially. It was seeing her tagged with it. Um, and, I know. Can you believe it? And then you know who else is on in season two? Joins the cast is Ernie Hudson. He, I mean, an Ernie, original. Oh, ghost. cool. Ernie Hudson is a high school classmate of my mom's. Wow. I graduated from the same high school, same, same class. Amazing. Yeah. So your mom <laughs> could have, if she had played her cards right, she could have been Mrs. Ernie Hudson. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but um, that there's also, there's a ton of amazing people who are on individual episodes of Hot Street. Yeah. So. A lot of people from Star Trek because Weissel is a huge, uh, Brian Weissel is a huge Trek guy. And so there's a lot of Star Trek cameos. And, uh, Excellent. Uh, just <clears throat> look it up, IMDb it or something. I will. So, I, I, or I, just watch it. I'm, I'm just going to put this out there to the universe. I'm wanting to get Ming Na when on Wookiee Radio and my Marvel show. Um, I, I just got to work up the gumption and send the letter, send the email. Can't hurt that. So you heard to ask. I mean, you're amazing. I, I was 
this was before she was finished. I was just like, wow, Mulan. Yeah. You know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> um, I am actually... Hey, yeah. I am actually friends with the person who was the, the character model for Mulan. Whoa. Who, wow. um, she's here in Orlando area. Um, and I think it's her father owns one of the Kung Fu temples here in town. Wow. And, Whoa. uh, she was brought in after so that means she must really know Kung Fu. She does. Wow. And she actually got to meet Ming-Na Wen. Ming-Na Wen came in to, um, see how to react to the movement and learn yeah. how to, you know, for for the character voice, so she became, sure. so the two of them became friends. Oh, well, you know, we might have so an awesome. in. We might have an in there. Go with that in, because because Ming Na Wen oh. has no idea who I am, even though we were on the same <laughs> show. But she's way bigger than me. Well, I, I'm just gonna. I believe I have her manager's contact, and I'm just gonna yeah. send it. Never hurts. Worst they say is no. Hey man, I mean, I when I work for the Star Wars magazine, that's. You would think that just working for the official Lucasfilm magazine gave me some clout, but often it didn't. I was just sending. This was pre, you know, just in the very earliest days of email. Yeah, like, I was just reaching out to so many people and trying to track them down and trying to find their agents and managers and call them up and get these interviews. Once the prequels started and they had new movies coming out, then the Lucas right. could hook me up with the actors, but when it came to getting in touch with people from the original trilogy, they didn't, they didn't even always know that they didn't know how to get in touch with people half the time. Wow. They didn't even know who did the voice of Boba Fett. That's a whole other story. Like <laughs> we, our magazine tracked wow. the actor down who did the voice of Boba Fett. We will save that story for when we get you we'll on Book we'll Radio. Story for another, yeah. another time. Yeah. Yeah. That was exciting. <laughs> I was like, how could you not know? Like they just didn't save that kind of those that paperwork. It wasn't seen yeah. as important. Somebody came in for like one day in post production. You know, did a few lines. Yeah, they had no idea what like Boba Fett was going to become. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah, I'll just let's just leave it at I've worked with, and therefore you can assume I must be close personal friends with me. Oh no, no, I <laughs> I, I never assume that, and. My favorite, one well, of my favorite Boba Fett quotes. He's no good to us, Dad. Oh, sorry. Wrong pitch. Yeah, what? <laughs> that? figure out what that, that character, that was more of a Greedo almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Um, well, they're, they're fellow bounty hunters. Oh, yeah. Except one's dead, one's still alive. I don't think we're going to see it. Well, it was a long time ago. Yeah. I'm going to assume he's dead by now. I, I don't think we're going to see the the series, the trade paperback of Greedo. That's a shame. That's a shame. I remember, I still remember being a kid and reading some of those early books, Splinter yeah. of the Mind's Eye. Yes. And uh, oh, my yeah. favorite book title of all time, Lando Calrissian and the Mind Harp of Shauru. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm a big Lando fan. Oh, very cool. Of course. Derek, any other questions? Come on, Derek. Yes. You can do it. I did. I had, I was, Google I was me. One, but it slipped my mind. Uh, <laughs> no, I had, uh, Scott's seat vibrates every time you Google. I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't blame you for not knowing my, my, uh, biography by heart, but you'll find a lot of random titles and spark your, spark a question or two. No, I actually, I had another, um, process question and i totally blinked on it well as you're um so you you've done you've done writing you've done some voice work and stuff um 
what do you find the hardest thing and what do you find the easiest out of the things you've done in showbiz yeah and writing by yeah. far is the hardest i mean i love doing voice work. is it I, I voice work is easy by you know i mean you know there's difficulty to anything and but really i've also done a lot sure. of on-camera acting and that is also really hard i mean it's not laying bricks but it's very like you know you got to memorize the words you got to memorize your every move and every place you spend you've got to be completely focused and prepared and awake and it goes on all day and at the end of the day you are just exhausted voice work i mean you just breeze in and you wear whatever you're wearing <laughs> and um you have a script in front of you that you haven't memorized maybe you've read it before maybe you, i mean i just did a a video game voiceover thing a month or so ago. And um, I didn't know. Oh, nice. They didn't give me anything before I came in. I just came in and and um, read it, read the script there and did it. And it's, it's by that token, it's easy and it's fun and you can play any part because I'm not going to, there's a lot of parts, there's very, you know, that I'm not ever going to play on camera. But from a voice perspective, you can do a whole lot more and play a whole different range of characters that you don't look like. Mm. But still, as hard as sort of on-camera acting can be, and I've done a little directing too, nothing major. You know, directing is very obviously intense and intensive. As hard and physical as that all is, like writing is, is still the hardest because you're starting with nothing, you're starting with a blank page, and physically it's not the hardest, but... It takes so many drafts for something to be good sometimes. And it's just so time to just the amount of time that you've got to devote to making something good and um, rereading it, rewriting it over and over, and trying to make things work. And you pull one thread, you go like, oh, I forgot I need to have this character do this. And then there's no place for it anymore. You know, if I change this, I have to change that. And if I change that, I got to change all of this. And and then you read it and, and somebody reads it and they're like, yeah, I mean, you don't really need the first act, do you? You could just start an act two. And you're like, what? What? <laughs> I just, what? Well, <laughs> but I love act one. And then even if you then go start to go, yeah, maybe I write. And it's like, Okay, so I'm starting here. Now, where am I going? And it's, it's, look, like I said, it's not laying bricks. There are, you know, it's not being a nurse or a soldier or a teacher. Right. Uh, but in terms of the jobs that I've done in showbiz, and I've done a lot, I've been an editor, I've been a production assistant, you know, back when I started out as a PA early on. And um, that's real, that's one of the hardest jobs there is. But um, writing is definitely. For me, it's very rewarding. I love it, but I also don't love it. If I could just, if uh, I would still write, but I think if I could just like be acting or and or voice acting every day, I would be so happy because it's fun. Writing is the most okay. fun when I'm with a partner physically writing comedy and we're making each other laugh. That can be really fun. Most of the time, though, writing is not fun. Most of the time for me, performing is there's a, a, a even when it's really hard, there's a 
element of it that's really fun. Plus, you're the center of attention. Everybody's looking at you. <laughs> they're doing your hair. I mean, look, we're all human. They're doing your makeup. They're, they're making sure you look good. <laughs> they're bringing you, you know, water or whatever. I mean, they're, it's an ego thing, too. It's just a fun day. The fun day. Anybody Makes tells sense. you that that isn't one of the funnest part, fun parts of acting is not being honest with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you are, you know, right. the big man on campus. Um, one of your most recent writing and acting credits was uh, School of Rock. Was yeah. it was it intimidating coming into that project, especially knowing how popular the the film was and the original material? That's a good question. Um you know, it was intimidating, but more on a personal level. Like, on in terms of, this was, you know, a TV version, a sitcom version of School of Rock. Beyond that, it was actually a Nickelodeon show. And when it started out, it was going to be more of like a, a show for the whole family. And it sort of ended up being more of a, you know, show for kids. Right. That said, it was a super um, good show for kids, I think. And... The writing staff on it was amazing. There were people on that staff who had written for The Simpsons, for Seinfeld, for Everybody Loves Raymond, for for Gallivant, a lot of really great shows. And that's what was intimidating for me, because that was actually the first sitcom where I was a staff writer, where I was there every week, or every day, that is, you know. even on BoJack Horseman, which is you know, an amazing show that I'm you know, super proud of. And the episodes that I wrote, we, I was a freelance writer. So I was there during my episodes. But this for School of Rock was like, you're there all the time in the writer's room. And there were some really experienced, talented people in that room. And that was what was intimidating. In terms of the lore, the known quantity of School of Rock, if anything, I think it's the opposite. Like, we know School of Rock. We know the, and School of Rock's a great movie. We know the vibe. We know the message. We know, like, that work is done in a way. Right. And it's not, I think if it was a Star Wars or a Marvel property or something, that would be more intimidating because you know there's a, you know, literally millions of people know that world inside and out and who are going to be anticipating and in many cases judging whereas with school rock a lot of people know it a lot of people love it nobody's really like going to be the school of rock police maybe there's 12 people in all of america be like wait a minute tamika was the bassist but in the movie in the show but now you know in the movie she was a singer you know like um yeah, I, I, when my daughter was watching it, and, and she still goes back and watches reruns. Oh, uh, uh, um, I mean, she watched it live when it came out, uh-huh. and then and she still goes back and binge watches it. Uh, I'm right. like, wait, characters have been moved around. Yeah. I'm it's like, the mixing and matching sort of, it's the spirit of it. Right. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is how they're separating the show from the film. Um, my daughter's not complaining about it. She's seen the movie many times. She loves the movie. How old is your daughter? Uh, she's 12 now. Okay. Um, I have a 10 year old daughter. Um, and she, she likes the show, but she needs to follow your daughter's example and go back and watch it again. Um, that's great. I love it. She's still, well, I'd say that one of the big differences is that, I mean, obviously the, the show is even more geared toward her age right. than our age. 
whereas the movie I think was for all ages. Um, but also the movie was more about the teacher. The right. show is more about the kids. That said, the guy who plays the teacher, um, Tony Cavallaro, who's he's really, really fun. He's different from Jack Black. He's not like we got someone who looks just like Jack Black. It's not like that. Um, you know, he's totally different. You can't really compare them, but I think he's really he's on Righteous Gemstones. If anybody watches Righteous Gemstones, he he's got the oh, I love Righteous Gemstones. On Righteous had- Gemstones, you get like five percent of his personality. You see it more on screen, <laughs> actually. When you were, on Righteous Gemstones, oh, wow. I forget his character's name, but he's the the friend slash lover of the son who the gemstone son. Oh, probably yes. a character. Yep. Yeah. But I'm sorry. What were you saying about him, Mike? I was going to say he he his portrayal of the character very Jack Black esque, but has his own. But you you don't completely think that he's trying to do a Jack Black impersonation. It doesn't it's, feel like a ripoff. No. It's sort of like he has that same spirit. Yes. I feel like. Yeah. He's not trying to impersonate. He's just I feel like that's inspired. what he would be doing anyway. Even if he'd never seen Jack Black. Yes. It's a very inspired uh, portrayal of the character. There's a lot. I agree. And, and he does a great job with it. He's awesome. And the kids were all really talented and they're all really great. And they're really playing their instruments and doing the music. I mean, at least they're singing. I don't remember. I think they're playing their instruments. Yeah, they are. Um, I just forget because on the set, they were, they would go in and record it and then they'd be playing along. You know, when we did the show. But um, yeah, that was a really fun show to work on. It was really great. And I was on it for two seasons it was on for three. I came in in season two, actually. Okay. Um, so we were, I was there for seasons two and three. And then, um, we were surprised that it got canceled at that point because I think it was like Nickelodeon's second highest rated original show. Yeah, it, it, it was a show that I know was pushed mm-hmm. quite a bit. I mean, I was seeing commercials for it all the time. Yeah, it was one of those things where the new president came into the network and, you know, didn't want to do everything the same way. Change. I don't know. You know, show this. Oh, yeah. It's such a, it's such a dumb business. Um, but that was... Uh, <laughs> it's not a show I get asked about a lot because it was mostly watched by kids. Well, being a parent, I watched it quite a bit. And I actually enjoyed it. I mean, it was fun. I love... Right. And that's the show where I did uh, something that I kind of ripped off from Laverne and Shirley. Okay. Because I remembered there was an episode of Laverne and Shirley you know, really dating. I'm very old. Where what was funny was that they had to go, they got to go to some, they Laverne and Shirley always wanted to meet guys and go to like big swanky events. And they got an invitation to the event of the, you know, right. season. And, and it was going to be this big fancy thing with all these eligible bachelors. But the, through whatever plot machinations got them to this point, when they got there, one of them was, extremely like comically hungry desperately needed to eat and the other one was extremely comically tired they could been up for days and desperately need could barely <laughs> stay away and it was just very funny physical comedy and the cross purposes and the two of them trying to like look like they belonged there and not fall asleep or grab any food and start shoveling in their mouths and like that and there was something you know if you've watched the school of rock tv show there was a lot of physical comedy. There was a lot of like 
you know, kind of absurd situations like that with the kids and stuff. And, and I, that was one where I said, like, wouldn't it, with this episode, wouldn't it be funny if, like, one of the kids, like, at this big show they're playing can barely stay awake? And, and we built off of those two dilemmas. And I don't even remember if it, how similar it stayed. But, but yes, I, we ripped off Laverne and Shirley. So the kids of today have never heard. Your daughter may never have heard, seen Laverne and Shirley, but she has essentially now gotten an education. Uh, the comedy of the seventies. It may come around. <laughs> yeah. Because oh, what show was it they were watching? Good show. Uh, she and my wife were watching. Uh, they were watching Golden Girls. Uh, they were watching the Monsters. Classic. They were binging the Monsters. Classic. Oh wow. Uh, they were binging Adam's Family and um, Bewitched. Nice. See, that's great. You know, it's funny, like those shows that you mentioned, like The Monsters, which I loved as a kid, Bewitched, I watched every day. Those shows are right. before our time. But what's interesting, yeah. like what's very different, I've been noticing this phenomenon because like my kids, they're growing up in this era. They can watch whatever they want, whenever they want, on whatever platform they want. And it's great. I love it. I'm not complaining. Right. You know. But when we were kids, there was so little options. We just had the TV with, you know, five or six basic channels. And there was so little content had even been produced up to that point that we were watching reruns of stuff from the 50s and 60s yep. constantly. Right. Yep. So, like, Bewitched and Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch and all that stuff that we watched that was before our time that kids of today don't really know. And kids of today don't really know you know, the stuff that was on 20 years ago, either. Right. but because, and not that they should, but it's just sort of fascinating to me that when we were kids, we were watching the same stuff our parents bought yeah. when they were kids. Well, during spring, uh, her spring break, um, I was off a couple of days on my normal days off and um, I knew what time it was. I'm like, uh, sorry, I'm watching my shows. There, mm-hmm. There's a show I'm going to watch. And uh, it was emergency. Emergency. I loved emergency as a kid. <laughs> uh huh. I still watch it today on Cozy TV. And you actually watch it as it airs because I DVR everything. So I just see if I see emergency is airing, I'll be like, okay, record emergency. Um, I'll watch right. it whenever I damn well please. I, I do. I do have it DVR. I have YouTube TV. That's what I do too. So I have it DVR, but like today's episode may have it may pop up as saying it was recorded three months ago right but it's still in the line i'm like all right what was today's episode <laughs> to go back <laughs> oh wait i just watched that one recently never mind just find one i haven't watched in a while how many seasons was emergency uh seven wow i think really huh. yes wow. uh i don't, one, I don't think i've ever seen it i was not a big i've seen it but i, I didn't watch it much <clears throat> uh yeah, I was, I came in more of the, because uh, it started in 72, 72, 79. So I watched it live starting around 75, 76, uh-huh. um, but I had to go back and watch uh, the reruns for the first few episodes when they would do the reruns. Uh, and one of the cool things is when the show started uh, the first season or two, the the original truck, not the squad unit, but the original fire truck, was an open open canopy truck. 
So it's just the windshield and then the rest. Yeah. There was no roof on it. Later, the the more common fire truck that you see with it that had the 51 on the roof and all that mm-hmm. was actually made in a town called Elmira, New York at the American La France factory. I know this because I used to live in Elmira, New York. I graduated high school from Elmira, New York. And it was one of my last stops for mm-hmm. going off to college. Um, so every time you see that truck, you're probably like, Yes. That's almost like, you know, hey, that's almost my truck. That's from my town. It is. Um, I mean, I mean, we only lived in Elmira. For, we lived in Elmira from 86 to 89. Um, Longer than I lived in Elmira. And never to never. But I know I, I met people who actually worked on that truck on the assembly plant. I'm like, you guys are heroes to me because I yeah. love that show. That's amazing. So, I love those random shows that we loved when we were kids. Um, it ran 131 episodes. Wow. Seven seasons. Incredible. And the... Oh, right. Didn't Jack Webb make that show? Yes. It was the second spinoff from Dragnet. Oh, was it a spinoff? I th- I think so. I love that. I'm a big fan of I, I, weird TV trivia, like spinoffs. I, I love the weird spinoffs of the 70s yeah. and 80s, especially. Yeah, because like, I, I know... I know Adam 12 was a spinoff of yeah. Dragnet and I believe yeah. emergency spun off of that as you would see uh, paramedics show hmm. up right. for different things. It was like Chicago hope into Chicago fire or not hope, Chicago uh, med and to Chicago fire into fire Chicago PD. So, um, but a lot of people had, because of the way scenes would play out, a lot of people were saying that Chips was a spinoff as no. well. And I'm like, no. No. It was. It, I love Chips. Now, Chips, I know about. <laughs> Chips, but I know. There was, um, but, but they would reuse the, the squad vehicle from emergency because right. you would see Squad it's, 51 show up. Just, the scenes. Not probably just because they were renting the same vehicle from yeah. the same, um, you know, <laughs> the picture car. They call it picture cars. Um, but, in the in the biz, but Chet played a bad guy in Chips. The guy who played yeah, Chet well, was a bad guy in Chips. Actors would appear in everything. I love Chips. I was big into Chips and Knight Rider. Yep. Oh, uh, I love Knight Rider. Team Man from Atlantis. Mm-hmm. I never watched Man from Atlantis. I don't. I don't know that I was aware of it when it was Me either. On. Yeah, I've never it. seen it. I was a, that was my first exposure to Patrick Duffy. That's nobody ever forgets their first exposure. Patrick Duffy. <laughs> Most people, it's Dallas. For me, it was Man from Atlantis. Me, it must have been Dallas. I watched Dallas. I remember I was part of that I, world because it was because so, my parents watched it. Yeah, usually you know, that's when I went to the other room. Shows. That was the other thing with like kids. Like, there's again, there's so much content. There's kids TV, but when we were kids, and Gen X, we're just like the forgotten generation. But not only part of it is like the parenting was hilarious. It was like. Not only were we watching what our parents watched because there were only a few channels and no, we didn't even have VCRs yet. Um, but also there was no like policing what we watched. Like right. we were watching completely right. inappropriate yeah. shows about murder and affairs, you know, people sleeping with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was no like, hmm, should should the kids be watching this with us? <laughs> like, whatever. For, for me, a Charlie's lot of Charlie's Angels. Yeah, I love Charlie's Angels. I love Charlie's Angels. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. When, when it came to shows like Dallas and Dynasty and Knott's Landing, it'd be like, uh, yeah, I'm getting up. I'm leaving the room. Oh, I watched them all. 
I, I was not a fan of those shows. You know what I loved because I think it's part of my like because I was into all the sci-fi and action stuff and a lot of comedy, yep. but I also always loved I love the concept, which now almost every show does, but of a continuing story. Back yep. then it was more of a rarity. Well, so, like my favorite show oh, yeah, right. of all time is Twin Peaks. Okay. Like the I just love a, uh-huh. a story that unfolds. And I think like that was as a kid when my parents would watch Knots Landing or whatever, I, I liked the idea that like you could keep checking in on the story. Right. Right. Derek, you have any other questions? I don't think so at the moment. Well, I'm going to say pressure's on there. <laughs> How do you do the pressure, Derek? Uh, works, I run and hide. He, there you go. He podcasts with me That's twice a, a week. That's a valid response. He, he podcasts with me twice a week. There, there's a <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. Out of, I don't he, put the pressure on him. You worked but, him too hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Chernoff. Yeah, um, please do. And uh, I love that. I definitely, when we put out the feeler for topics for Wookiee Radio, was quite surprised to see, like, oh, my God, oh, yeah. this is awesome. Um, I'm sure you probably heard it on the one show prior to, like, this is, we got Scott Turnoff asked us a question. <laughs> this is great. I, I'm honored. Uh, oh, we're honored. Somebody who would make me so excited. Oh, it's geekdom. How can we not? I mean, look, your, yeah. your resume says it all. School of Rock, Rick and Morty, Conan. Jimmy Kimmel, right, well. then discover you were editor, um, an editor and writer for for Star Wars Insider. Right, right up there. You to do my PR. Okay, that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And um, so go follow Scott. Go check out his previous works. If you need a reminder, go to IMDb and look up Scott Turnoff. <laughs> um, but Hot Street. Um, Tell your friends. Hot Streets on HBO Max. Rick and yeah. Morty. You, you got everyone knows where to find Rick and Morty. Yeah. Uh, School of Rock. <laughs> uh, School of Rock, which I believe is on Hulu. I think it is on Hulu. If I it's think. not on Hulu, it's on Netflix. It's been, I know it's been on Hulu. I just haven't. I'm not sure if it's still there. Recently. I hope um, it is. So check it out. And on Bojack Horseman. Netflix. Bojack Horseman as well. Yes. Highly recommend. Yeah. And on that note, we say thank you, and hopefully we didn't leave you, the listeners, wanting to know more. So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production.